All right. As we uh, continue our study this evening, we turn our attention to the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, last week, we, we spent the past two weeks looking at the Last Supper, and now we're transitioning to the events that unfold immediately after the Last Supper in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, I did not, pre- I did not prepare any chronology to throw up here because from now through uh, the end of this quarter, which will run through May, we're really just looking at the last day of Jesus' life, um, which from the traditional chronological standpoint would be um, the evening uh, of what we would call Thursday through the evening of Friday. Um, but that last day of Jesus' life that coincides with the Passover is our, our um, focus at, at this time. And so we're going to start with our, our reading from Scripture tonight. And like I did with the uh, Last Supper segment of our study, I have compiled all four Gospels into one continuous reading. I've tried to change some of the font colors to make it a little bit more visible, especially to me way back there. But uh, the way this works, in case you're unfamiliar with it, um, all the passages in yellow are coming from Matthew chapter 26, all the passages in blue from Mark 14, all the passages in white from Luke 22, and all the pink from John 13. And I have tried to combine them in one continuous reading uh, to help us I gather all the details together and, and to not have to read from all four Gospels since we're dealing with so much content right now. So if you would, you can see the verse number uh, in front of each uh, colored section that correlates to the uh, chapter and book that it comes from. So follow along with me as we, we read from the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples, as was his custom, across the brook Kidron to the Mount of Olives, where there was a garden called Gethsemane which he and his disciples entered. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them, uh, found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he withdrew from, there, from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And he came, to the, and he came the third time and said to them, Are you sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, speaking, that was very Arkansas, speaking, speaking, Judas came, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. 
When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back, fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? friend, do what you came to do. And they laid hands on him and seized him. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. But Jesus said, no more of this. Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father? And he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels. How then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. This evening I want to begin by talking about the location of these events. And uh, in just a moment I'm going to do something I don't, haven't done a lot of. We're going to do a little um, sightseeing. Um, but let's start with this term Gethsemane. We are familiar with this as the Garden of Gethsemane. But what does Gethsemane mean? Uh, it, this term only appears in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 36 and Mark chapter 14 and verse 32. And it is a transliteration of two Hebrew or Aramaic terms, which when they are combined, these two terms mean oil press. Now John refers to this location simply as a garden in chapter 18 verse 1 and verse 26. And the term garden... You know, we, when we think of a garden, we think of something we have in our backyard. In the terminology that's used here, a garden is any highly cultivated area. So it can be a large space, or it can be a small space. It doesn't matter size-wise, but it's a highly cultivated area. It may not be a garden in the sense of what we're used to as far as flowers or vegetables. A garden is any, any in, in this terminology, is any space where there is stuff growing intentionally. So we understand that it's a garden. We understand that the name of this garden means oil press. And that's significant because it's a reference to the fact that this is a place where olive oil was grown and likely um, prepared. So, and, and we know that this location is associated with the Mount of what? Olives. So therefore we have some clues as to what this place is for. So let me show you this. Here is a diagram of Jerusalem in the first century. I know it just makes complete sense to you uh, with your ability to read all this fine print up here. One thing I just want you to understand about Jerusalem in particular is this large shape here is the Temple Mount. It was on the eastern side of the city next to um, the Valley of Kidron where the Kidron River ran through. So there's nothing on the east side of the Temple Mount basically except for a, a steep valley. 
And this kind of gives you an orientation of what Jerusalem would have been like running north to south. Now, when we get to this picture, here is um, in the, the red rectangle, that's the Temple Mount today from a Google Earth image. That itself is the Temple Mount. And you can see there's nothing really to the east because you've got a valley formed there and there is a, 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 a river that runs through there. But what you have over here in the giant red oval is where the Mount of Olives is located. It is on the eastern side of the Temple Mount and visible from the Temple Mount. That's where the area where Jesus is heading for the Garden of Gethsemane, just outside of town, within view of the temple itself. Now, if we take this look, this is the Mount of Olives from, uh, the, from south of the Mount of Olives, looking northward towards it, I believe. And just to help you uh, get an idea of, of it, let me... You can see this red line kind of outlines the curvature of the mountain or hill. Most of what you see on the screen on the, the, uh, this edge of the mountain is cemeteries. It, it, the southern end of the Mount of Olives is, is full of Jewish tombs. Fascinating. But here's the... Jerusalem would be just this way. I mean, Jerusalem in particular, the temple, would be just to the left of this screen. And um, the area where the Garden of Gethsemane is believed to have been located is just in that area there on that, that uh, western slope of the Mount of Olives. Now, with that being said... There are two primary proposed sites of where the Garden of Gethsemane could be. And they're both, of course, have some sort of church or some sort of place of worship located at them. We don't know specifically where the, Mount of, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane was, but I'm going to show you these two locations just to help your mind's eye. So we'll start with site number one. It's the location of the Church of All Nations. That's the, uh, the, church, that has, the church building that has been located. Uh, built on top of this location. Now, to orient you, the gold dome there is, the, uh, is, is uh, where the Temple Mount is. That is the uh, Islamic temple there on the Temple Mount. But to help you get an idea of where the Garden of Gethsemane, this first site, the traditional site, is located, I'm going to circle that. You see that structure back there? That is the Church of Mary Magdalene. Uh, it's a, I think it's a Eastern Orthodox Church, but um, I'm using that as a locator for you for the Garden of Gethsemane, just to get an idea of where it is in, 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 in conjunction with the um, Temple Mount. That dome building that I've circled is not the Garden of Gethsemane, but it's going to help in the next couple of pictures, because now this is looking, oh, and by the way, you can kind of see the Mount of Olives back there. That rise is, is the Mount of Olives. Now, in this picture, we're looking from the Mount of Olives back towards Jerusalem. So you can see the gold dome in the upper left section. And this circled area is that building I had you looking at. Just below it is where the Garden of Gethsemane is going to be. And here is a, uh, a clearer look at the Garden of Gethsemane. There's your gold dome. There's your, your Church of Mary Magdalene that I've been referencing this whole time. This is the traditional site of the Garden of Gethsemane. And the building that is located there with it is called the Church of All Nations. Now, inside that building is this. It's called the Rock of Agony. It is said to be bedrock on which Jesus prostrated himself and prayed. 
I'm not advocating that it is. I'm just telling you what tradition says. So that's inside that Church of All Nations building. This is the outside. This is the olive grove on the grounds of that church building. These olive trees have been dated um, thousand plus years. Whether or not they could have been present at the time of Jesus is unknown. Um, but this, this is what an olive grove would have looked like. And this is the traditional site associated with where the Garden of Gethsemane would have been located. There was a, before this building existed, there was a 12th century um, crusader church or a crusader chapel in this location. And that crusader chapel was built upon a 4th century Byzantine basilica. So there has been a long history of religious structures on this site with this traditional location of the Garden of Gethsemane. I show this to you so you get an idea of what an olive grove would have looked like. But there is another location, just a short walk away from uh, this particular um, grove of trees. It's called the Gethsemane Grotto. Now, located, I showed this a minute ago and didn't talk about it. Here's your Temple Mount right here. This is your Mount of Olives all over here. This star represents the place we just looked at, the Church of All Nations with the Olive Grove. This star, which is just a short distance walk, is where the second location, the second site that's associated with the Garden of Gethsemane is located. And it's called the um, Grotto of Gethsemane. And it's associated with the Tomb of the Virgin Mary. There is a religious site here, a, a structure built here, that connects both the Grotto of Gethsemane and the Tomb of Mary. And uh, here's a picture of the outside of that structure. You have to descend into this courtyard to get down to it. The doors you see in the background lead to the um, chapel that's connected to the tomb of the Virgin Mary. But if you take this corridor, this alley to the right, it'll take you to this entrance. And I don't know if you can really see this red lettering here, but it spells Gethsemane. And behind that door is this room. It is a cave-like area that some contend was the actual location of where, they, where G Jesus and his disciples went when they went into the garden. There has been archaeological evidence found, I believe, in this particular grotto of an oil press in the, in the, in the in inner cave work of this uh, facility. And so that's why some people think this may have been the place. You have to remember that the, an oil press, uh, historically, they would often have one inside of a cave or a closed structure such as this so that during uh, uh, colder months or during rainy months, they could still produce their oil. Um, so uh, a lot of oil presses would be inside of a cave like that. Some contend that this is a more likely location because they think that maybe Jesus and disciples went to the garden to spend the night. Because it's interesting, the Mount of Olives fell within the radius of Jerusalem that was acceptable for you to walk to uh, and, and, and for, for you to sleep in during the Passover. Remember, the Passover has a Sabbath observance with it, which means you can't do what? Work. And one thing that is counted as work is walking a certain distance. So there are some, the Mount of Olives fell within this radius of what is acceptable for you to travel to after the Passover meal and for you to spend the night. 
So some scholars contend that Jesus and his disciples would be looking for a cave-like structure in which they could spend the night. I have no idea. I just show you both locations so your mind can kind of picture an olive grove, which is completely fits within the context of a garden, particularly. But the cave might well fit into the story as well. Remember, when Jesus uh, is buried, he's buried in a tomb, and it's part of a garden. Here's my conjecture. As close as these two locations are, could they not have been connected? Could there not have been olive grove all over that hillside and including caves, structures all over the hillside like this? Because the Mount of Olives was a very cavernous uh, mountain. That's why there are so many tombs on one side of it. So in, in my opinion, it's possible that both locations could have been involved in some fashion or neither location could have been involved. We just noticed the Mount of Olives but I wanted you to get an idea of what that looks like when it comes to uh, where Jesus is going. Because we kinda, you're going to see different artwork that I put up there uh, tonight in the images. And you know, the, artists don't, they, the artists that made these in the 1400s, the 1500s, 1600s, they weren't in Israel painting these things. So the idea of what the garden looked like can vary from person to person. And I sometimes think, well, it helps me. So you have to listen to me talk about it. Um, so, why was Gethsemane where they went? Well, one thing we do know, uh, particularly from John chapter 18 and verse 2, um, and, as well as Luke chapter 22 and verse 39, is that this was a place Jesus often went. The Garden of Gethsemane, this part of the Garden of Gethsemane, wherever that is, was frequented by Jesus. John chapter 18 and verse 2 says, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. This was a regular meeting spot for Jesus, supposedly when he was in Jerusalem. And then Luke chapter 22 and verse 39 says, And he came out, came out of Jerusalem, and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. So Jesus had a pattern of going to this location after spending time in Jerusalem. Maybe this was a special prayer spot for him, that, that, that this particular prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane was not the only time he prayed there. But all we know is that it was a very uh, well-known location for him and his disciples. And um, so it had some importance to him and his group and became the one place where Judas knew he could find Jesus in private. So that tells us what, some things we need to know about this location. Now let's transition to talking about the disciples. Because as the story unfolds, we see very quickly that, that Jesus has brought his disciples to this location, but he separates out three of them and takes them to, he, he leaves eight in one spot, takes the three, the big three, Peter, James, and John, and goes a little ways away and then he steps away from them to continue praying. Let's talk about these disciples for a moment. Why did Jesus ask the big three, the inner circle, to join him? Why did he separate them out? Well, it's interesting. Peter, James, and John experience a couple of things that the other um, apostles do not. They experience the raising of Jairus' daughter, the, re the resurrection of Jairus' daughter. They're allowed in the room 
with Jesus and uh, the girl's parents, but the other disciples were not. The other big event that they got to experience was the transfiguration. Not all 12 uh, apostles were allowed up on that mount. It was just those three. And so for some reason, Peter, James, and John got to experience some things that the others did not. This is the third occasion where that's going to happen, where they're within closer proximity to Jesus during this evening of prayer uh, than any other. But it is interesting. Peter is the one who made this really bold claim in Mark chapter 14, verse 31. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. Peter's the one that made that claim specifically, though the other apostles kind of seconded it. Peter's the one who said it. James and John also made a pretty bold claim in Mark chapter 10, in verse 38 and 39. Um, Jesus asked them, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they both answered, We are able. So these three guys, though I'm certain the other apostles made some bold declarations about following Jesus. Oh, we know, we know um, I believe it was Thomas that, that made a bold declaration when they, found, when they heard about Lazarus' death. And Jesus is like, we got to go to Jerusalem. And Lazarus, uh, Tim, I, think it's, I think it's Thomas who says in John chapter 11, well, we're going to go and die too. You know? So there's other bold claims. But Peter and James and John, maybe, maybe Jesus is including them to give them the opportunity to back up their bold claims. What, what, if, what if Jesus is giving these three, because we have some specific examples of bold statements they made about, about um, dying with him, about drinking the same cup as him, may, maybe he's going to give them, in this moment, they have their chance to prove what they said. Because he's already informed them that they're all going to fall away. And when the mob comes to arrest him, guess who's going to be nearest to him? Peter, James, and John. Maybe this is an opportunity for them to back up their statement. Or maybe it's an opportunity for him to show them that their bold proclamation is kind of empty because they're going to fall away just like everybody else. I don't know that if that's the reason. It's just something I observed as I studied and prepared for this that it's interesting that they made these statements and now they're going to be right there with Jesus with the opportunity to live up to those statements and they're going to fail. I think really what we see when Jesus selects these three is that he needs companionship right now. Jesus is at what I believe to be his weakest moment in the Garden of Gethsemane. I think he's at his, his, uh, the most difficult part of his ministry is in the garden. And I don't think he really wants to be alone, but he doesn't really want everybody there. You, you, can't, you ever been in that, that kind of setting where things are just so difficult and so painful? You don't want to be alone, but you don't just want anybody around you. You ever been like that? I wonder if that's what Jesus is going through right now. And so he selects these three who he's formed such a tight relationship with, and he, and, and he invites them to stay close to him. But he even separates himself from them to go out and pray. And did you pay attention to what he asked these three in particular to do? What does Jesus ask Peter, James, and John to do? 
What was that? I can't hear you. To stay awake. What else? To pray. What else? Watch. I've always found that the very first thing, according to Matthew's gospel, that he asked them to do is watch. Watch for what? He didn't give them specific instructions. What is he asking them to watch for? Is he just wanting them to watch for a mob? Is he just wanting them to be lookout for his protection? But the first thing he asked them to do is watch. In fact, uh, Matthew 26, verse 38. Remain here and watch with me. And then he goes off and prays. When he comes back, they're asleep. They didn't watch. I don't know the specifics of what he wants them to watch for, if it's just watching for the mob or if there's something bigger going on here. I suspect there's something bigger. Watch out for yourselves. Because the second time he speaks to them, it's not just watch, it's watch and pray. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's Matthew chapter 26 and verse 41. What is he wanting them to be praying for right here? Pray that you may not enter into temptation. What temptation is he concerned about right now? I think it's a reference back to the fact that earlier in the evening, at the Matthew 26 and verse 30, he had told you will all fall away because of me this night. I think he's encouraging them to be watchful, to, to, to be sober-minded, to pay attention, and to pray for the strength, the courage, the ability to remain faithful because he knows what's about to happen and he knows how they're going to respond. And he's, even though he's told them they're going to fall away, I think deep down he, he's hoping they won't. And he's encouraging and challenging them not to. He's giving them everything they need to know to avoid falling away. He's been predicting, prophesying, telling them about what's going to happen this night for days, if not months, if not years. He's been preparing them for this, and they have never really accepted it. And it's all going to go according to what he said. And I think deep down, his longing is that they won't. They won't fall away. See, he didn't ask them to pray for him. Did you notice that? He did not ask them to pray for him. He asked them to pray for themselves. And he used the exact same terminology that he included in the model prayer back in Matthew chapter 6. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus, I believe, is trying in this moment to give them the tools necessary to avoid sin that night. Watch and pray. What's really the significance, though, here of of what's happening with him and the disciples in the garden. I think there are two things that stand out to me. I think what's happening in the garden and his interaction with the disciples reveals to us another aspect of his humanity. 
I am always appreciative when something happens in the life of Jesus that reminds me he was 100% human. Pay attention to some of the terminology he uses, particularly from Matthew chapter 26 and verse 38. There are two phrases in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 38 that I think give us great insight into his humanity. The first phrase is, my soul is very sorrowful. Matthew's language here echoes uh, some terminology from the Psalms, particularly Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, where, where uh, David uses the phrase, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in, ter- in turmoil within me? That idea, that concept of being cast down is what is the similar language to this, My soul is very sorrowful. The idea here is that he's deeply distressed. His, there, there is emotional pain right now. Jesus is going to endure a lot of physical pain with the crucifixion. We'll spend a lot of time talking about that. But we cannot overlook the fact that, that emotionally, he's going through torment as much as he will physically. Because he's going to be betrayed. If you've ever been betrayed by somebody, you know that is painful. He's going to be abandoned by his closest friends. If you've ever had a friend abandon you or a relative abandon you, that is painful. He's about to be mocked and made fun of in horrific ways. And if you've ever been picked on, made fun of, mocked, humiliated, that's painful. Not on the physical side, but on the emotional side. Jesus is dealing with that now. Before he ever appears before Pilate, before he ever appears before the high priest, he's already hurting because of what he's going to endure uh, from people. Not just the physical abuse, but the emotional abuse. Uh, damage as well. His soul is very sorrowful, he says. And then he says, even to death. The phrase, even to death, really could be paraphrased as, I'm so very sorrowful that it's killing me. It's, it's comparable, the, the idea here is comparable to when we say we're scared to death or we're worried to death. That's how Jesus feels. And when you listen to him pray, which we'll talk about in just a moment, but when you listen to him pray and he's begging for an alternative, it's because He really doesn't want to have to go through with this from the human standpoint. He knows it's going to hurt physically, emotionally, mentally. He knows it's going to be difficult. Could it be that Jesus was absolutely scared to death at the moment? One detail that really stands out to me. Hold on, I might be jumping too far ahead. Um, one detail that really stands out to me is that an angel appears at the end of his prayer to strengthen him. What? The Son of God needed to be strengthened? Why did Jesus need to be strengthened? Because he's human. Because he's absolutely 100% human. And if you had all that baggage weighing on you, you would need some strength too. And so the whole uh, conversation, the whole interaction with the disciples here reminds me he's human because he's dealing with this emotional baggage and he needs companionship. 
But I think it also consistently reminds me he is the only perfect person. Because Jesus told those sleeping disciples, the spirit is indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And, and through these last moments of his life, Jesus succeeded where those disciples failed. He overcame the flesh by way of the spirit throughout this whole ordeal. They did not. He put the Father's will first, even when it meant his own life. These disciples put their will first when they flee the garden that night. When you watch how he handled the situation, and you watch how they handled the situation, it's just a reminder that only he was perfect and sinless and blameless. So let's talk about his prayer for a moment. First off, notice the posture. How does Scripture say he prayed? Matthew chapter 26 and verse 39, or Mark chapter 14, verse 35. What's the description of his praying posture? Fell on his face and prayed. We call that a, a prostrate posture, not a prostate, a prostrate posture. Don't ask Stan Burnett to ever use those terms because he mixes them up every time. Prostrate. That means to cast oneself face down on the ground in humility, submission, or adoration. It's a posture of humility. It's also an unusual posture for praying. Jews most, this is to quote one, one author, Jews most often prayed standing with uplifted hands. Prostrate posture was the gesture of urgency, not of normalcy. And so it's interesting you read Jesus' ministry, and many, many times we'll read about people uh, approaching him and falling on their faces before him. But this is the only time Jesus is said to have fallen on his face. And it's when he prayed to his Father with the most extreme of urgency about the biggest matter of his life. And think about the words that he prayed. In the reading I used tonight, I actually probably um, repeated some of the prayers, but I wanted to make sure there were three different prayers in the reading. Or at least you saw three prayers in the reading, because uh, the way the gospel is presented, we have three different occasions that he walks out to pray. And I wanted to get as much of that terminology as I could. One thing that's interesting is Mark chapter 14 and verse 36, where Jesus is said to have used the word Abba, in his prayer, in reference to God. He called God Abba. Now, Abba does mean Father, but it's not the formal terminology for Father. Um, as, uh, I'm trying to make sure I'm not quoting, yeah, I'm quoting somebody here. The, to quote one author, the preservation of Abba indicates that Jesus prayed to God in the everyday language of the family. When Jesus addressed God this way, he did, so, he did something new. For in the literature of early Palestinian Judaism, there is no evidence of Abba being used as a personal address to God. In the Jewish mind, the use of this familiar term would have been considered disrespectful in prayer and therefore inconceivable. 
but Jesus can do it. Why? Because God is truly his Abba, his Father, in a way that he is not ours. So it's worth pointing out, you know, I don't think Abba is a term we should be using when we pray. I think that was kind of an exclusive thing that only Jesus could do. And I think in this moment, it really gives us an insight into a child begging his dad for something. You know, when Micah walks up to me and there's just a certain way she can say daddy and you know, all right, she's up to something. You know, and and you've probably experienced that with your children. There's a certain way they approach you and they say your name and you just know, okay, what does she want? Jesus is approaching God the Father in a very intimate way right now and communicating in a very intimate way. And I find it interesting, if you read Matthew's account of the prayers in Matthew chapter 26, particularly in verse 39, Jesus starts off by, with this prayer. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That's his first prayer. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. His second prayer in Matthew chapter 26 is, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. First prayer, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Second prayer, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. That transfer of language is fascinating to me. In the, in the first prayer, he's seeking the possibility of an alternative route to achieve his Father's will. In the second prayer, he's not just repeating the first prayer, he's altering the language in such a way as if to acknowledge his acceptance of the Father's will to go this way. And from this point on, there will be no further indication of reluctance on Jesus' part to fulfill God's will. He prays this prayer in this moment, asking for this cup to pass. But after this second prayer, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. After the second prayer, there's never a question, there's never a reluctance, there's, there, there's never an indication that Jesus is seeking an alternative way. He will not resist arrest. He will offer no defense at his trials, basically. He will accept everything that comes his way from this point forward. And I wish I'd have mentioned this earlier when I was talking about Jesus' humanity in this time. I love Luke the physician and his recording of this prayer mentioning in Luke chapter 22 and verse 44 that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Because there is a known medical condition called hematidrosis. Hematidrosis is the excretion of blood or blood pigment in the sweat. And it is a very rare phenomenon that only occurs in highly emotional states. Go look it up on Medical MD or any other medical website you want to. 
It's a hemorrhage in the sweat glands, causing the skin to become fragile and tender. It is an indication of just how emotional Jesus is in this moment. Because he knows that this arrest is coming. So let's talk about the arrest for a little bit. First thing we can notice is that in Mark chapter 14, verse 43, we're, we're told that a mob is coming, basically. This term that's translated crowd in Mark chapter 14, verse 43, indicates a mob, literally. There's hostility inferred in this terminology. And if you look at the, the people that are in this mob, we're told there are a band of soldiers. John 18, verse 3, there are a band of soldiers. The terminology used here reference to Roman soldiers, to, to the soldiers that accompany um, the, uh, the Roman, um, to, that would accompany Pilate to Jerusalem for this feast. Because whenever there was a big religious feast in Jerusalem, guess what? Roman authorities came to town and they brought the soldiers down from Caesarea and they set them up in the Fortress Antonia, which was a Roman fortress connected to the corner of the Temple Mount. Because if there was any uprising, and the Jews loved uprisings, if there was any uprising because of the religious fervor of the, the festival, of the holiday, of the, the feasts and everything, they wanted to squash it immediately. And the one place you'd have to squash it is in the Temple Mount. So connected to the court of the Gentiles, where any Gentile could go, was the Fortress Antonia, where the soldiers resided during these feasts. And some of those soldiers were sent to the garden to arrest Jesus. But we're also told that some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees were there. That's John chapter 18 and verse 3. That's a reference in particular to temple guards. So we've talked about uh, before how the Sanhedrin, which is made up of, of the scribes, the elders, and the chief priests, how they had authority over the Jewish people when it came to their religion kind of operating in a Supreme Court-like way for religious matters. Um, they did employ temple guards, uh, sort of um, figure, police officers for the temple, people who would enforce um, religious rules there on the temple mount. So if a Gentile stepped, in, stepped beyond where he should be in that temple area, well, those guys are going to go kill him. Or something like that. So we've got Roman soldiers, we've got Jewish soldiers, quote-unquote, among this group, and there are some of the religious leaders among this group. Of course, Judas is also there. And the commissioning of this mob was done by the Sanhedrin, because there is this reference in Mark chapter 14, verse 43, um, this designation of the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. So this is commissioned primarily by the Jewish leaders, but notice Roman soldiers are cooperating with them. The thing that stands out to me about the arrest, though, is the surrender of Jesus. John's gospel is the one that presents this clearest. When the mob entered the garden, Jesus approached them. And Jesus asked, who are you looking for? Jesus voluntarily went to the mob, to this arresting mob, 
and asked who they're looking for. When they said Jesus, he said, that's me. Actually, he said, I am he, which is so fascinating when you consider the, the importance of the I am name, the I am terminology. God, when he identified himself to Moses, Exodus chapter 3, he used the I am who I am. Jesus, um, throughout the Gospel of John, would ident identify himself and associate himself with God by using I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the true vine. I am the good shepherd. I am the door to, of the sheep. I am the vine. The, I did the vine. Uh, the resurrection and the life. So on. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the... Uh, I am... Ah, oh, I lost the other one. Anyway. Jesus frequently used that I am terminology. And when they were looking for Jesus, I am he. Jesus did, wasn't afraid to acknowledge who he is and to surrender. Remember, Jesus would say, I laid down my life. No one takes it from me. Literally, this night, he voluntarily, voluntarily turned himself in. When he said, I am he, what did that mob do, according to John's gospel? They fell down. They were so shocked that they didn't even arrest him in the moment. He had to ask them a second time, who are you looking for? Jesus, that's me. And, and it seems that finally then Judas confirmed the identity for them by giving him that kiss. But Jesus wasn't afraid to turn himself in. He wasn't afraid to surrender. And that's important because it shows that Jesus was actually always in control of the situation. The religious leaders, the mob, the soldiers, they were never in control. Jesus was always in control. It's even more evident by the fact that when this mob arrested Jesus, what did Peter do? It's interesting, Peter had a sword on him. Uh, and when they came to arrest him, Peter decided he was going to defend Jesus. I have to admire Peter a little bit here. In the moment, Peter had said, I will die with you. This mob outnumbered them, I'm certain. This mob, this mob had weapons on them. This mob came prepared to fight if they had to fight. And Peter may have been the only one with a weapon. Well, we're told in one of the Gospels that there were two swords among them. Uh, it's theorized that maybe Simon, since he was Simon the Zealot, would have had the other one just because he seems to have been the one that knew how to use one. But Peter had one. Peter legitimately went to fighting an, a militia to protect Jesus. So maybe Peter really was willing to lay down his life for Jesus. And think about this. What did, who did Peter strike with the sword? The, the high priest's what? Sorry, what was his name? Malchus. What did Peter hit? His right ear. Have you ever thought about that? How did he get an ear? Is he just that bad of a name? Was he, was he, how do you, how do you get an ear? I've heard it told this way that, you know, when you and I picture it, I, well, I don't know about you. I shouldn't speak for you. I used to always picture it. He took his sword out and struck that, and maybe the guy leaned over and got his ear. I've heard it told that more than likely, Peter swung this way going for the guy's neck, and the guy ducked. 
I think Peter was going to kill. I think Peter was going to take this guy's life. And this guy managed to get out of the way. And then Jesus tells him to sheathe the sword. Can you imagine the look on Peter's face when Jesus said, put the sword away? Can you imagine the look on Malchus's face when Jesus reattached his ear? Jesus was a surgeon. I do, this is the fun part of me that, that just likes to ponder things. I wonder if Jesus picked up that ear and then blew it off first. Get the dirt off, you know, before he reattached it. But this is an amazing moment. I wonder if the, disciples, if the apostles fled when Jesus rebuked Peter in this moment. If that's really, it shook him up so much that they couldn't defend him. I'm fascinated at this reaction here. But Jesus, in rebuking Peter and telling him to put the sword away, Jesus announced that he was in control of the whole situation. And when Jesus picked up that ear and reattached it to Malchus, Jesus announced that he was in control of that whole situation. When Jesus identified himself and surrendered himself and willingly went with them, he announced that he was in control of the whole situation. Not once was Jesus not in control, and you can really tell it when he announces, I believe it's Matthew's gospel. Don't you know? I could call 12 legions of angels right now, and they'd take care of this whole situation. He was always in control. That's the beauty of Jesus in this horrific moment, is that he always knew he had, the, he had one move he could make that could end all this. And he had the restraint to not use it. I don't know that you and I would have such restraint. To know that we could eliminate this whole horrible situation like that and not use our way out. Jesus not only submits to God's will, but he restrains himself from utilizing his divine agency in the moment. And throughout the whole ordeal, nobody could see it but him. But he was always in control. So the garden sets us up for this horrific next day. But it's one last moment of, of incredible beauty in the life of Jesus before he goes to the cross. I'm going to wrap up with those comments and open it up for these last couple minutes. Are there any questions or comments or observations or ridicules or whatever it is? Yes, Ms. Patty? Yeah, Galatians. Well, I mean, it is, it, yeah, it was unfair of me to say, hey, you can't ever use Abba, which is really what I ultimately inferred. Um, I, I just see something special here about Jesus using it because the average Jewish person did not. Um, 
I do think, we, we, especially in, uh, I believe it's Galatians, where, where Paul is, is really talking about our adoption, I think is this, the section that, in which he uses it. I think he's trying to portray, particularly for Gentiles, that, in, that they are just as accepted in the eyes of God. So uh, I think he's trying to portray that intimacy that a Jewish person has with God as well, um, if I'm getting that passage correct in my own head right now. But uh, I, I, yeah, it's not, it's not a sin to use the word Abba. I'm just trying to highlight the intimacy that Jesus is expressing because it was not ordinary for a Jewish person to address God with that terminology, at least not in written record that we know of. I, yeah, I think, so my point is there is a level of respect and honor that our addressing of God should possess. And just because um, Paul uses that terminology of Abba doesn't mean he's advocating for us to be disrespectful or demeaning of God anyway. And, and though I don't necessarily find Daddy disrespectful because my two girls, that's what they—or, well, I shouldn't say two girls because Leah's not talking yet. But, but that's what Micah refers to me as, and I'm not—I don't feel in the least bit disrespected by it. It's intimate. But I, I think the idea is that, that when we address the Father, because when Jesus gave us the model prayer, and though I should probably go back and check and make sure he didn't use Abba there, but our Father who is in heaven is the terminology he used, um, at least in the English. Um, I think there should be a level of respect. That's my point. Does that address your... Okay. Any other comments, questions? Wonderful. How many bells has that been? Is that three? Let's close out with a word of prayer and then we'll be dismissed. Our Lord God in heaven, once again, we're grateful for another evening of study. And we're especially grateful as we uh, look at these last moments in the life of your son and what he went through. And, and Lord, we are, are grateful that he did surrender to your will and that he showed such restraint uh, when he could have done uh, so much more. Um, Lord, help us, help us to be like him. And Lord, help us... Help us to never forget what he did. It is through his name that we offer this prayer. Amen.